1, John chapter 1. Uh, we, uh, we for, for the Advent season this year, have been walking through um, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Um, three weeks ago, we looked from the Gospel of John at the theme of illumination. John says that Jesus is the light of the world, the light of men who came to shine in the darkness. And so three weeks ago, we considered what it means for us that Jesus came to be the light of life, that Jesus is the light of life. Two weeks ago, we focused our attention on John the Baptist, who John the Apostle says came to prepare the way of the Lord. And so we looked at this theme of preparation what it meant for John to come as a forerunner to Christ, to prepare the way of the Lord, and then also what it means for us to prepare ourselves for Christ. Last week, we looked at the stunning language of John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, eternal son of God, robing himself in the frailty of human flesh. And, and so we looked at the theme of incarnation. So we've considered the topics of illumination and preparation an incarnation, and this morning we'll, we'll round out our study of John 1 by looking at the theme of proclamation. Uh, it's been said before that good news is worth telling. And, and the message that we've looked at these past three weeks is, I would argue, the greatest news of all. Amen? The news that God has not left us to ourselves. I mean, that's what this season communicates, is that God has not left us and abandon us to our own devices. That though we, as humans, mess this whole thing up, God has stepped into the mess. Emmanuel has come. God is near. This, this is the good news of Christmas, and this news is worth telling. Luke, Luke records for us that when the shepherds made it to Bethlehem and found the baby in the manger, which is what the angels told them they would find, they, they, they had to report the message. They, it says they reported the message they were told about this child. And so you can imagine it. These, these shepherds, I mean, this, the, these angels appearing, and then they, they hit the road to Bethlehem. And when they get to Bethlehem and they find the child in the manger, just as it had been told them, they had to tell the others who were there. They had to tell Mary and Joseph and the others, this is just like what the angels said it would be. And can you believe that these angels appeared to us? And so they, they gave a report of what they had seen and heard. And then it says that as they made their way back home, they glorified God and they praised him for all the things that they had seen and heard. The shepherds could not stop talking about what they'd witnessed. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested for not being able to shut up about Jesus. Acts 4, 1 and 2 says that while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were proclaiming Jesus. So they seized them and took them into custody. Verse 18 says, They called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And I, I love Peter and John's reply. Peter and John answered them, we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't not talk about Jesus. Good news is worth telling. 
And for Peter and John, it was worth telling, even if it cost them, even if it meant persecution and suffering. They couldn't not talk about what they'd seen and heard. But we've jumped ahead with with Peter and John because in the second half of John chapter 1, where we're going to be this morning, we actually get the story of how Peter and John were first introduced to Jesus. And so we're going to pick up in verse 29 of John chapter 1 this morning. And what we discover is that their ministry of proclamation, Peter and John's ministry of proclamation, actually came as a result of someone first telling them about Jesus. Someone pointed them to Christ. And they became his disciples, and then they began to tell others. And this has been the pattern ever since. So let's read it. Let's see it together. And as we do, I'm going to invite us to stand this morning in honor of the reading of God's word. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29, God's word says this, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one who you see the Spirit descending and resting on, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. 
Let's pray one more time as we dive in. Father, as we now come to the preaching of your word, we pray that your spirit would illuminate the truths contained in these verses and open up our hearts to receive what you have for us, enabling us to obey and walk in what you desire of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5.20, the Apostle Paul writes, We are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Elsewhere, Paul would write to Timothy and exhort him to do the work of an evangelist. An evangelist is someone who spreads good news. And in the Christian context, it's someone who shares the good news about Jesus. Now, some have observed Paul's instruction uh, regarding Paul's instruction to Timothy that, that Timothy's highest spiritual gift was likely not evangelism. He, Timothy was not one who was uniquely gifted with spreading the good news. His gifts were, were elsewhere, and yet Paul still instructed him to do the work of an evangelist. And what we see here is that some are uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit, for evangelism. And yet all of us are called to get to talking. Every Christian is called to this work. Charles Spurgeon once said, it cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. See, good news is not only worth telling, we should want to tell it. And so this morning, as we look at this latter half of John chapter 1, I want us to notice four truths related to this topic, this theme of evangelism, of spreading the good news, because good news is worth telling. So four, four truths about evangelism. Number one, faithful evangelism focuses on the person and the work of Jesus. Faithful evangelism focuses on the person and the work of Jesus. We, we noticed this two weeks ago when we looked at John the Baptist how, how he was consistently deferential in the way that he lived his life. John didn't want attention. His aim was never to draw attention to himself. His aim repeatedly was to draw attention to the one coming after him. And here again, we see the same thing. We see John not pointing to himself, not drawing attention to his own ministry. We see John pointing to Jesus. When he sees Jesus coming, he says, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. This is the one who I testified after me comes one who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. And then a little later he testifies, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven on him like a dove and resting on him. And God, who sent me to baptize with water, told me the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I testify to you that this is the Son of God. John's, John's message, his his ministry was, was to say, here is the one I've been trying to tell you guys about. This is the one who's greater than me because he preexisted me. Look, here he is. Here's the Lamb of God. He, he's pointing to Jesus. One of, the, one of the things that you notice as you read this passage in John is that there were these little nuances of difference in people's expectations and hopes surrounding Messiah. Andrew goes to his brother Peter Simon Peter and says, we found Messiah. But Philip puts it a little differently to Nathaniel. He says, we found the one Moses wrote about. 
Nathaniel's unsure about this because he doesn't know anything about anybody coming from Nazareth. There were, these, there were all kinds of ideas about Messiah in the first century. All different kinds of nuances and hopes and expectations and longings. And, and the same thing is true today. There are all kinds of ideas about Jesus today. Amidst the slurry of, of ideas, we are called to speak clearly regarding the identity of Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. And, and, and this, by the way, if you're visiting with us this morning, our vision statement is to be a, a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. And, and the reason why we use this language of, of the real Jesus is because we want to make the Jesus of scriptures, the Jesus that John testified of, we want to make this Jesus known in a world where there are lots of competing ideas about who Jesus actually is. There are a lot of counterfeit ideas about who Jesus is. And so like John, we want to clearly testify of the real Jesus. And so I want us to notice four things that John says about Jesus in this passage as he faithfully evangelizes the name Jesus. The first thing that John says is that Jesus is the pre-existent one. Verse 30, he says, This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Now, this is kind of some weird language, but what John is saying is there's one who's going to come after my ministry. My ministry came first. There's one whose ministry comes after me. But here's the reality about this person. Even though his ministry comes after mine, he actually existed before I ever lived. He's the pre-existent one. And he ranks ahead of me, meaning he is of higher authority. He is of more importance. He is of greater significance than me. So John says of Jesus that he is the pre-existent one. He also says of Jesus that he is the Lamb of God. Verse 29, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we see again in verse 30, 36, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Now that would be a weird way to, to, to characterize somebody if we didn't know about the Old Testament background of what John is saying. In the Old Testament, lambs were used in Israel's worship unto the Lord. In Israel's relationship unto the Lord, it, it required lambs for sacrifice. And there were two lambs in particular used in, in Israel's worship. There was the sacrificial lamb and there was the scapegoat lamb. And I think John is hitting on both of these things when he points at Jesus and he says, Look! It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The sacrificial lamb, the priest would take that lamb and he would slaughter that lamb and he would take the blood of that lamb and he would put it on the altar. And, and what was going on here was it was life for life. So the life of the lamb in place of the life of the people. The, the, the life is in the blood. And so by, by killing the lamb and placing the blood of that lamb on the altar, there was an atonement being made. Instead of the people having to die for their sins, the animal was sacrificed in the people's place. And so God would pardon the people based upon the sacrifice of the animal. He would push back his just wrath toward their sinfulness, toward their disobedience, because they had sacrificed the lamb in its place. Ultimately, the, the author of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs could not atone for human sin, a human lamb. A human sacrifice had to come. John says, Behold the Lamb of God 
who comes to take away the sins of the world. This is perhaps the first time where there's an explicit direct connection between the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and Jesus. Where John says, hey, that suffering servant, that one who was wounded for our transgressions, who was pierced for our iniquities, behold the Lamb of God. But there's another picture with the lamb in the Old Testament. It was the picture of the scapegoat because they would take a second lamb. And what the priest would do is the the priest would place his hands over the head of this scapegoat lamb. And he would confess the sins of the people over that lamb. And then they would take that lamb and they would send it out into the wilderness. And this is such a beautiful picture because the picture is this. That lamb was imputed or stamped. Or, or absorbed all of the sins of the people. That's the picture here. That lamb carries on it all the sins of the people. And then that lamb is sent away into the wilderness, carrying their sins away. God's word says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed his, our transgressions from us. Behold the lamb of God. Behold the scapegoat. Jesus comes to carry our sins away. This is John's testimony of Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. The third thing that he says about Jesus is that he saw the Spirit descend on Jesus and rest on him like a dove. And then he says, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says that Jesus is the Spirit-anointed Spirit baptizer. Now again, this is super weird language if we don't know what John's talking about here. But if you've read Isaiah 61, then this is really good news. Because Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 61 that there is one coming who is going to be the Spirit-anointed Redeemer. The Spirit of God rests on him, and he comes to proclaim good news to those who are in bondage, to set free those who are in captivity, to comfort those who mourn in Zion. That one is going to come empowered and anointed by the Spirit of God, and he's bringing liberty with him. He's bringing salvation with him. And John says, it was testified to me that the one you see the Spirit of God descend on, he's the one. He's the Isaiah 61 prophet. He's the one you're looking for. And John says, that's Jesus. And because he is the Spirit-anointed one, he can baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And the good news of being baptized in the Spirit, what what the prophets would point to over and over and over again, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, what they would point out is that under the Old Covenant, the problem perpetually was that the law could not produce new hearts. The law could not wash and cleanse from within. And in fact, the Spirit's ministry was often limited to an anointed one or two. The king was anointed. David was filled with the Spirit of God. But the people, they lacked the fulfilling of the Spirit. And so the prophets would point to a day coming when God, Joel chapter 2, would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. When no longer will it be said, each to his neighbor, hey, you need to know the Lord, because each shall know him from the least of them to the greatest. That that all will prophesy and dream dreams. That all will be filled with the Spirit of God. And here's John saying, hey, Jesus, the one one that had the Spirit resting on him, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to pour out the Spirit on all flesh. He's going to baptize all of us in the Spirit. He's going to give all of us new hearts. He's going to give all of us the ability to walk in God's ways. 
is John's testimony of Jesus. And then finally, John says in verse 34, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This Lamb of God, this Spirit-anointed, Spirit-baptizer, He is no one less than God's one-of-a-kind Son, the only begotten Son of the Father. John focused his energy. He focused his testimony. He focused his ministry on making this Jesus known. Faithful evangelism focuses on the person and on the work of Jesus. It points to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we, church, we need to be clear on these things, on, on who it is that we believe Jesus is and what it is that Jesus came to do. Jesus was not just a great guy with some good ethics. Jesus wasn't just the guy who said, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is God's one-of-a-kind son. He is the pre-existent son of God. He is the eternal son of God who robed himself in flesh that he might become God's sacrificial lamb, that he might carry our sins away for us, that he might baptize us in the Holy Spirit and fill us anew and make us new and give us eternal life. That's who Jesus is, and that's what he came to do, and we need to be clear about these things and make the real Jesus known. So faithful evangelism starts with proclaiming the person and the work of Jesus, but it doesn't end there. I want you to notice something else with me. Number two, faithful evangelism personally invites people to come to Jesus. Faithful evangelism personally invites people to come to Jesus. It's interesting. Verse 29, John points at Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Then verse 35, it says, the next day, John's standing there with his disciples, and he points at Jesus. When Jesus walks by, and he says, here's the Lamb of God. Apparently, John's disciples didn't catch on the first time. John wasn't merely making an observation. He wasn't merely communicating information. He was, he was issuing an invitation. He was saying, stop following me and start following him. See, the goal of evangelism is not only to share the good news, it's to invite others to become personal participants in the good news. It's to invite others to actually become disciples of Jesus. Verse 37 says, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. That's the goal. In fact, notice what happens. Andrew, and we presume that the other disciple here is John, who's writing the letter. John has this weird thing about mentioning himself in his gospel, but we can almost be certain that it's, it's John who's with Andrew when he was standing with John the Baptist and John points him to Jesus. And so Andrew and John begin to follow Jesus. Jesus notices. He says, what are you guys looking for? And they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Can we follow you to where you're going? Teacher, can we come and spend some time and learn from you? And Jesus says, come on and you'll see. I'll show you where I'm going. And they go and they spend the day with Jesus. And then after spending time with Jesus, we, we, we read that Andrew then goes back home and finds his brother, Simon. And he says, Simon, we've found him. We have found the Messiah. And he brings Simon to Jesus. So John pointed Andrew to Jesus. Then Andrew invites his brother Simon to get on the action. We see the pattern again in the following verses. It says the next day, Jesus was headed to Galilee, and he encounters Philip. And he says to Philip, hey, follow me. 
Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. And so Philip goes to Bethsaida and he finds his friend Nathaniel. And he tells Nathaniel, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So Jesus found Philip. Then Philip went and found his friend Nathaniel. Do you see the pattern here? The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, how can they call on him of whom they've never heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? As it is written, how beautiful on the mountaintops are the feet of those who bring the good news. See, God is sending us who have been invited in and who have spent some time with Jesus, who have become who have begun this discipleship journey, he's sending us now to go invite someone else so that they can get in on the action too. Bruce Milne, a commentator, quotes historian E. Gibbon, who says, here lies the secret of the spread of Christianity in the early centuries. It became the most sacred duty of a new convert to diffuse among his friends and relatives the inestimable inestimable blessings he had received. Personal witness continues to be the primary means by which people are brought to Christ. How did you come to faith in Jesus? If you confess Christ this morning, if you would say, Jesus is my Lord, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I wonder how you came to faith in Christ. Who told you about him? The great reality is that if you have a relationship with Jesus, it is because at some point along the way, someone told you about him and personally invited you to follow him as Savior and Lord. Now, your story might be more like Philip's. Jesus found Philip directly. So maybe, maybe you were in a hotel room and you opened that middle drawer and there was a Gideon Bible and you opened it up and started reading about Jesus, and Jesus found you that way. He met you right there in a hotel room. That could be your story. But more than likely, the great majority of us who know Jesus, it's because someone told you about Jesus and invited you to get in on it. And if that's how you came to faith in Christ, it begs the question, when's the last time you talked to somebody else about Jesus? When's the last time you invited someone to know Jesus? And maybe you hear that, and that sounds incredibly intimidating to you. Maybe it, it even sounds a bit out of touch and offensive. Can I remind us? I know it's Christmas, y'all. I remind us of what's at stake here. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. Acts 4, 12 says that there is no other name than the name of Jesus given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. There's one name. There's one name that saves. There's one name that sets free. There's only one Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's only faith in that name 
that brings forgiveness and pardon. The stakes couldn't be any higher, y'all. Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem so that he could die on a cross outside of Jerusalem to pay sin's penalty and suffer for our guilt and shame. And apart from trusting in him, apart from trusting in his name, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no reconciliation with God. So we've got to get serious. We've got to get serious about inviting our lost relatives and our lost neighbors and our lost co-workers and our lost friends to know Christ. We can't pretend like this doesn't matter. At the same time, we see something else in this passage, which is this, that while our evangelism should be marked by urgency and it should be marked by passion, it should also be marked by patience. As we aim to present Christ, we leave room for questions and we create space for dialogue. That's the third thing we see here. Faithful evangelism leaves room for people to ask questions about Jesus. Something I noticed as I studied this passage is that each person who came to Jesus had unique questions and unique hopes. We, we saw that a minute ago. Andrew was searching for Messiah, Philip for the fulfillment of Moses, Nathaniel. He wasn't looking for Nazareth. It's a good reminder for us that each person we talk to likely represents some sort of idea about a better day. Each person we talk to has some sort of hope for for a future. And so what we want to do is we want to proclaim Christ in such a way that intrigues and entices and speaks to people's hopes and longings. This means that we have to listen well. We need to speak the heart language of our neighbors and show how Jesus is the end game of what they long for. If you listen closely, some people are longing for comfort, some for peace. Some for security, some for love. Their longings represented in conversations that we have. And if we listen closely, each of our neighbors, our friends, is communicating their longing. And ours is to show them how Jesus fulfills that longing. How Jesus is better than whatever it is they think will bring them what they need. We also see here that not everyone will immediately respond positively. Notice Nathaniel. When Philip tells Nathaniel that he's found the one written about in the law of Moses, Nathaniel's response is to say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Nazareth was not a town associated with messianic fulfillment. And so part of, part of Nathaniel's response here is understandable. He's going, hey, in, in, in my reading and in my study of the Old Testament scriptures, I don't read anything about Nazareth. So what are you talking about? But there's also this reality that Nazareth was a little redneck. You know, I mean, it's like saying, can anything good come out of Talladega? I mean, there's some prejudice here. Nazareth was obscure. Don't you love Philip's reply? Hey, come and see. Come and see. He didn't malign his friend. He didn't try to debate Nathaniel. He didn't rebuke him for his lack of faith. He invited him to come and see. Hey, come check it out. I'm telling you, I've spent some time with this guy. He's like no other person I've ever met. He answered all of my questions. 
You remember the, the crowd's response to Jesus as he begins his ministry? Here's one who teaches with authority. There's something different about this guy. Philip says, come on, Nathaniel, come and see. And notice what happens. Verse 47. It says, then Jesus saw Nathaniel come toward him and said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel replies, how do you know me? See, this is what happens when people get close to Jesus. They end up asking, how do you know me? Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. I, every time I read this passage, I'm like, what was he doing under the fig tree? I would die to know what in the world Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. Apparently, whatever it was, and John doesn't tell us, it was something that Nathaniel thought nobody else in the world knew. Jesus says, hey, before Philip went and got you, when you were under that fig tree, yeah, I saw you. He says to Nathaniel, he says to all of us, I see you and I know you. Church, when it comes to evangelism, we just need to get people close enough to Jesus for them to experience this reality. That's our job, to get people close enough to Jesus to let him start doing what he does until they say, how do you know me? Maybe you're like, well, how do I do that now? Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We just need to get people close to God's word. Carl Bart once said, I've read many books, but the Bible reads me. See, the scriptures expose us. And through them, Jesus still speaks and says, I see you and I know you. And so we invite people in. We say, come and see. We bring them to the living Christ through the living word of God. And God's word gets to work. And that's the last thing that we see here is that faithful evangelism, number four, trusts in the power of Jesus to save. Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. The the, the word of God is the inspired word of God. It is the God-breathed word. It is living and it is active. It is powerful and it is effective to save. And so at the end of the day, we can't convert anyone. You can't manipulate anybody into the kingdom. But we can bring people in close proximity to Jesus and let him do his thing. As John testified, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. After Jesus declares to Nathanael, I see you, Nathanael. I know you, Nathanael. Nathanael confesses, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Come and see leads to you are the son of God. And so we invite people to explore, to engage with Jesus. We, we, we put the word of God before them. And this is how lives are changed. And here's the good news. This means the pressure's off of us to save anyone. We are not the savior. 
Jesus is the Savior. God does the converting. We are ambassadors for Christ. We tell people about the real Jesus, and we invite them, come and see. We do our best to get them close to Jesus, and then we pray and we wait upon Jesus to do what only he can do. But church, I do want to say this. We need more of this in our church today. Safe spaces where we can say to people, come and see. Is your life like that? Maybe for starters, we should start with the question, is your life seasoned with the salt of Christ? Is your life a light that beckons people like a, like a porch light to come on in? Does your life communicate, hey, it's, it's safe here to have some dialogue. It's safe here to ask questions. Are our gospel communities environments where we can say to those who don't yet know Christ, you can belong here before you, before you believe? It's, it's safe for you to come into our home and to ask questions. We can dialogue this out. Is our church a place where we can say to people who are, who are somewhere between a skeptic and searching, hey, it's okay. Come in. You're welcome here. I long for us to be that kind of church. And then I long for us to be a church that prays people into the kingdom because faithful evangelism trusts in the power of Jesus to save. It's God's work. We're just witnesses. As we saw a couple weeks ago, we're just errand boys and errand girls for Jesus. We hold up the word of God. We pray. And Jesus does his thing. As we close, I just want us to consider two questions for personal reflection. Two questions for personal reflection. Number one, do you have a testimony? Do you have a testimony Has the word of God impacted you in a personal way such that you can say with John, I have seen and testify that Jesus is the son of God? Have you made the good confession that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? And not merely the sins of the world in a generic sense, but your sins. If you've never made that confession, I want you to hear John 1.12. To all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God's desire, number two, is not merely that you would believe in Jesus. He certainly desires that. But he also desires that we would tell others about Jesus. And so if you have trusted in Jesus... Number two, are you proclaiming it? Are you proclaiming that good news of the gospel? He desires that as we believe in him, that as we receive his salvation, that we would tell others how they can get in on this, that we would say to others, come and see. And so as we close, this is my prayer. May we, like the shepherds, report the message And glorify God for all we have seen and heard. Because church, listen to this. What a gift it is that God has chosen to reveal, even to us, even to us, the greatest news ever. This news is worth telling. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, this Christmas I pray, 
I pray even this morning, Father, that you would awaken some for the very first time to the glory of your son, Jesus. And God, for others of us, would you reawaken us by your spirit to how good this news truly is? Would you gladden our hearts in the love your son has given to us so that we might say with Peter and John, we cannot remain silent about him. God, make us heralds of good news. Send us out to go tell it on the mountains, over the hills and everywhere, that Jesus Christ has come, he has rescued, he has saved, and through him we can have fellowship with you. God, we pray this in his strong name. And the church said, Amen.